Hi, I'm, uh, I'm uh, Jody Trani with the uh, Intelligence and National Security Alliance, and uh, what a great day, and yesterday, these last two days, it's, my, it's going to be my great honor to introduce the Congressman uh, Thornberry this, this evening. This is, I think everyone's looking forward to your presentation, Congressman Thornberry. Let me just say a thanks to the University of Texas, uh, the Clemens Center, certainly the Strauss Center, Raytheon for supporting it. And so this is a, a partnership that the Intelligence National Security Alliance really, really, really appreciates. I want to say Ambassador John Negroponte unfortunately could not be here today. And as I mentioned last night, he was our first director of national intelligence. This is an issue he feels very strongly about. And I'd like to just share one or two things. And I know he would have said these, uh, this and more if he were here. Uh, over the last uh, two days. Uh, uh, Ambassador John Negroponte, working closely with President Bush, saw the DNI as, as a catalyst to bring the community together. And I think he did, and we spoke about that today with the National Counterterrorism Center, and that's really a good, it's emblematic of, of where the president was and certainly where John Negroponte was. But I'll also mention a few other things. He created mission managers, and he said for the president of the United States, Iran and North Korea were important issues, and he wanted us to focus on it. So what the Ambassador Negroponte said, I'm going to create these two offices that have my authorities to bring the community together, and indeed they did. He, created the National Counterproliferation Center. He said the president is concerned about WMB counter, countering proliferation. We heard from Mary a few minutes ago that some of these bad actors, in this case Al-Qaeda, they were looking for weapons of mass destruction, nuclear, and, and indeed that persists. So he created that. And I can tell you that was the whole of government. And we didn't need any language per se, but the government just galvanized. They, they were energized by this. And with that, these, the center itself, and certainly the mission manager offices for North Korea and, and for Iran, easily got the community together, but it went beyond the intelligence community. It was the whole of government. It was State Department. It was Treasury. It was Commerce. We all came together because this was the mission and this was the call. A great success for the Intelligence Reform Terrorism Prevention Act. And I, and I give a lot of credit to certainly the community, but, but to John Negroponte, and I think he takes a great deal of pride in that, and we should all take pride in that. So on behalf of uh, INSER's Chairman Ambassador John Negroponte and our Board of Directors, INSER is very excited about this opportunity to build on new partnerships and to reach this new, new audience. And, and let me just say to the students here, regional issues, language, culture, history, you heard that in today's and yesterday's presentation. They're so important because it all ties in. You need to understand, and I think Mary said that a minute ago, getting into the minds, getting in, seeing how they see our issues. And until we can do that in an effective way, we're going to be sort of deficient in certain of our approaches to some of these issues. So for the students here, functional issues, extremely important. Regional issues, extremely important. Get into that, and I can tell you the intelligence community is, and the national security agencies per se, not just the intelligence community, needs that input, needs that youth, needs the millennials coming in and others coming in from the universities, graduate schools, and so forth, because that's the future, and indeed that is the future. And I might, a plug for INSA, we do recruit uh, interns. We have over 12 interns working at INSA, so if you're interested in coming to Washington, consider us. It's my distinct honor to uh, introduce Congressman Mac Thornberry. I, I briefed the Congressman a number of times on things like North Korea, and I can tell you, he's really tough. <laughs> and he gets in the weeds, and you better have your act together, otherwise, otherwise you have a problem. So it's a very distinct honor. As a familiar face, both here in Texas and in Washington, he hardly needs an introduction. In the two decades in the House of Representatives, Congressman Thornberry has been a leading voice on national security matters, cybersecurity, and defense acquisition reform, 
in particular, and, and, and Congressman, thank you for that. It, it may, means a lot to all of us. As Vice Chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, he leads the Subcommittee on Intelligence, Emerging Threats, and Capabilities. This subcommittee plays a vital role in shaping and overseeing the national security activities of the intelligence community, things we're talking about today and yesterday, and we will talk about tomorrow. He also has been in the forefront on defense acquisition reform. Many say very necessary. The Congressman Thornberry has been pushing that with great vigor, leading a long-term effort working this with his colleagues in the Congress, the Department of Defense, and the private sector to find ways to operate more efficiently and maintain a high level of national security and operational readiness. The congressman, this is something I know very, very, very well, and many of us here, uh, certainly David Shedd and Tom Finger and many of us here, and John McLaughlin, the congressman is also a senior member of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, where he serves on the subcommittee on technical and tactical intelligence. This oversight role demands an understanding of the intricate details of how our intelligence agencies operate and understanding that he has demonstrated time and again, I can tell you, we will be hearing from the man who really knows the intelligence community, so it's gonna be a great honor. He's taken charge of the intelligence oversight with great passion, conviction, and knowledge, and as a nation, we are better for it. He is one of our nation's leading voices on intelligence, defense, and related national security. So what a distinct honor to introduce Congressman Thornberry. Thank you, sir, for being here. Well, thank you, Ambassador. I, I appreciate that. Uh, let me say I admire uh, all of y'all who stuck with the day. Uh, it's been long and full, but incredibly helpful. Uh, for example, that last panel was really interesting to me. And uh, so I appreciate uh, everybody sticking with it. Uh, the good news for you is they put the politician at the end of the day, so no intellectual heavy lifting will be required. Uh, <laughs> So, so, re so rest easy. But like everybody else, I very much appreciate uh, the Strauss Center, the Clements Center, and INSA for putting this conference on. And I gotta say, as, uh, uh, it, it, as someone who graduated from Texas Law School, it, it does my heart proud to see the increased uh, visibility of one of my alma maters in, in the area of, of national security. Um, now, I realize it may be kind of brave of me to try to uh, offer some thoughts about whether an institution with less than a 10% approval rating has been a help or a hindrance over the last decade. Uh, but I'll, uh, as, as has often been said, we're basically down to staff and blood relatives who approve, and, and some of them have their doubts. Uh, but, but I'll forge ahead anyway uh, and just offer you at least one person's perspective on, on some of what Congress has done well, some of what Congress uh, has not done so well over, over the past decade. And, and just to back up and put a little bit of context, uh, all of us could probably tell these stories but I certainly will never forget this bright sunny day where I dropped off my kids at their elementary school and then went on to the Pentagon where I was supposed to have breakfast with Secretary of Defense. I t we told them that I was gonna be a little late so everybody else was set, there were five or six other members there, they were already eaten when I went in there. The Secretary was gonna brief us on his plans for reforming the Department of Defense and, and, and taking advantage of new technologies 
and so forth. And as it got closer to 9 o'clock, an aide brought him in a note that said a plane had strayed off course and hit a building in New York. Well, it's kind of time for us to be uh, going about our, our way anyway, so we all kind of got up to leave to, to say goodbye, and another note comes in and says, this deal in, the Pentagon, in New York is, is, is pretty serious. And as you might suspect, the date was September 11th, 2001. Uh, so I got in my car, drove across the bridge. I remember I was right across the middle of the 14th Street Bridge going towards the Capitol when the radio said, Another plane had hit a building in New York, and obviously something pretty serious was, was underway. So I get to my office in the Cannon Building, turn on the TV news, and they show lots of smoke coming out of the Pentagon, which I'd just left about 15 minutes before. Then a Capitol Hill policeman comes running down the hall saying, get out, get out, there's another one coming for us and people just flood out of, our, out of their offices, out into the street, not knowing where to go, what to do. It was, needless to say, rather chaotic sort of situation. Cell phone circuits were overloaded. You know, you couldn't get a cell phone call. I had an early Blackberry at that time, and I could kind of get an email through occasionally to, to my wife, who was kind of wondering what was happening, as you might expect. But nobody knew uh, when or how we might be attacked next. But we found out about a week later. And I think one of the great underappreciated facts is that the attacks of 9-11 were followed quickly by the anthrax attacks, where there were messages that said death to America, death to Israel, uh, Allah, Allah is great, and a little white powder that turned out to be anthrax was mailed into Capitol Hill offices. As you all remember, that shut down the Capitol. All mail was stopped. Uh, parts of the Capitol were walled off. Five people died as a result of those attacks, and 17 other people were affected. I think it's that combination of, a, of attacks which told the American people that we weren't safe in planes, we weren't safe in our offices, we weren't even safe at home or in the office when we got our mail. Nothing that we had counted on to protect us was really working. And that made everybody unsettled and uh, concerned ab about our, our future. By the way, I think we're getting some of that feeling right now. Uh, because if the Secret Service can't protect the White House and the President, if we can't protect our own borders against thousands of children coming from Central America, then what can we protect? And the rest of the story is that the VA can't do a good job in, in taking care of our veterans if Congress not only does not pass legislation but often doesn't vote on legislation then what institution is really working in the country? So I think we're getting a lot of that unsettled feeling uh, today, questions about institutions that we got after 9-11. As you all know, Congress responded after 9-11 in a variety of ways. The authorization to use military force passed on September 14th. 2001, and has been mentioned several times today, the Department of Homeland Security was uh, created in November 2002, a little more than a year later, and the Intelligence Reform Act was passed in December 2004. I had had the good fortune throughout my 20 years in Congress of being a member of the Armed Services Committee. 
I was appointed to the Intelligence Committee in August of 2004, so I got there just a couple of months before the Intelligence Reform Bill was passed. I recently finished uh, Henry Kissinger's book, World Order, and in there, there's a passage that really jumped out at me. He says, Americans hold that every problem has a solution. The Chinese think that each solution is an admission ticket to a new set of problems. And I kind of think that's the best summary I know of about the Intelligence Reform Act. In a way, it's a solution, but it's also an admission ticket to a new set of problems. And we have seen some of those problems, of course, with WikiLeaks and Snowden and a variety of other things that we've been, been talking about. Overall, a decade later, I still think, as I think everybody who's voiced an opinion today has said, that it, it was a net positive. It needed to happen. It and a number of other reforms and funding increases helped make us safer. I guarantee none of us uh, thought at the time that we could go more than a decade without another major attack against Americans here at home. Partly it's because we've been good and put a lot of effort into it. Partly it's because we've been lucky. But, but nonetheless, uh, we, we have, a, have had a remarkable uh, amount of success. Uh, to me, uh, the, the goal of the Intelligence Reform Act, as you've heard, and I'll go ahead and use the words, was to end stovepiping to connect the dots, because the bottom line was one agency had information it wasn't sharing with another agency, and, and if they had talked together, then we might have been able to prevent the attack. But at the same time, a big deal, and, and you've kind of heard this referred to earlier, the Senate was especially pushing towards more centralization. There was pushback from the House, especially concern about what happens to intelligence needed by the tactical warfighter. And the concern was if there's too much centralization and too much focus on whatever the national issue is of the moment, the guy who's worried about what's over the hill may get shortchanged. And we still have some of those tensions, by the way, in the last two National Defense Authorization Acts. We have had provisions to look at the warfighter intelligence needs and how they are fitting in with the broader national intelligence priorities framework. But it is uh, absolutely ca the case with greater uh, sharing of information, we have made it easier to have, uh, we have had, it opened up some greater vulnerabilities. So if, if any analyst has more access to more information, if that analyst goes bad, then obviously we have a greater loss. And we've seen that with the tremendous damage done from Snowden and, and WikiLeaks. I will say I think it's a really good thing to step back and, and take an assessment of how things have gone, have gone, particularly over the space of time. Congress usually does not do that. What we usually do is have a crisis, have a great consternation, and belch out some reform, and then go on to the next problem without going and looking at what we've done and, and trying to evaluate it and, and make adjustments. I will say the attempt was to do it differently with the Intelligence Reform Act. After the Intelligence Reform Act passed in 2005, the House, at least, for the Intelligence Committee, for the first time ever, created an oversight subcommittee, which was also one of the recommendations that had been made by, by the commissions. And the goal of that oversight committee was to 
evaluate the implementation of the Intelligence Reform Act, see how it was going, try to work with the community uh, to, to, to see that our goals were being achieved, and to measure progress uh, towards meeting those goals. <clears throat> Since I'd done some other organizational work, uh, I was asked to chair that subcommittee. And, and one of the things we tried to look at was whether we could develop a set of metrics to help us evaluate as administrations come and go, as Congresses come and go, whether the needs of the policymakers were better being met by the intelligence community, whether the goals were, were, were being achieved. Uh, there's a great book coming out in January. It's basically an intellectual biography of Andy Marshall, the le legendary director of the Office of Net Assessment in the Pentagon. One of Marshall's quotes in there is, I'd rather have decent answers to the right questions than great answers to irrelevant questions which is true for the intelligence community, it's also true for congressional oversight. How do we know if we're asking the right questions? How do we know if the answers we get back are decent? And how do we know if the people we're asking are even capable of giving us decent answers to the questions that we ask? Uh, so that's what we were trying to get at with, with uh, having some standard which would, would uh, stay steady over time that would help evaluate the success or failure of of what we were doing. Uh, it didn't work. Uh, we quickly turned into partisanship as the 2006 elections were approaching. And, and so we ended up arguing more about how many people that were in the DNI's office to ever looking really at what the people were doing and whether the nation's needs, needs were being met. So I think to be fair, as you look at Congress over the last decade, it's okay to say what could we have done better? What were missed opportunities as well as what did we do that uh, helped or, or hindered our efforts? Here's some other things we probably could have done better. Uh, we could have uh, prevented politics from intruding so quickly into our national security decision making. I mean, none of us who were there will forget the, uh, the, uh, the absence of partisanship immediately after 9-11. And it wasn't just in those days, it was in the weeks and months afterwards. There was less partisanship uh, in committee, on the floor, uh, everywhere we went. It showed what was possible. And it is a shame that it did not last. Instead, we got too quickly to the point where prominent leaders who had been briefed fully on particular programs tried to disavow those briefings, point the fingers at the intelligence community when it became unpopular, and started running for political cover. Uh, we, could have, we could have done better on that. Secondly, uh, Congress could have done better in oversight, even in the initial days after 9-11. I, I am increasingly convinced that the legislative, the founding fathers were very wise. The legislative branch was a separate branch for a reason. And our job is not to rubber stamp the, uh, any administration, whether they're of our party or a different party. Our job is to question and prod and test and see whether a particular policy makes sense and whether the administration officials who come to defend that policy are able to do so. Because if they can't do it to us, they probably can't do it to the American people. 
So looking back, I think Republicans did a disservice in some ways to the Bush administration by not questioning more some of their policies. That doesn't mean I think anything was wrong. I think, though, that we would have been better in the last days of the Bush administration into the Obama administration if there had been a greater testing, a greater stressing of, of those policies. And then we, we ended up, you know, in a, with a similar situation in the early years of the Obama administration, just, just with the other party. Thirdly, I think Congress could do a much better job of, at looking at the bigger picture and the longer term. The temptation is always to follow the news of the day, uh, because that's what the reporter is going to put the mic in your face about. And yet, if you think about it, Congress doesn't really have anything to do with the news of the day. We don't manage crisis. That's up to the people we've been listening to all day. Our job is to provide, the, as I'll get to in a minute, the tools, the funding for the longer term. Uh, Y'all have heard uh, Vice President Cheney tell the story when he was Secretary of Defense after the first Gulf War, one of the first things he did was call President Reagan to thank him for the military buildup in the 80s, which is what they used in the Gulf War uh, in the early 1990s. That's kind of Congress's job, too. It's to buy the things, to make the decisions which will be available for the people to use in, in the crisis. Uh, but yet, we don't do nearly enough of that long-term thinking, what are the trends, what do we need to ha ensure that the nation is equipped to do in the future. Instead, we tend to focus on, on the short term. And finally, I know that all the folks who have been in the executive branch will concur with something else Congress could do better, and that is manage the funding on a more stable basis. Uh, it, I don't see how any manager of any office inside the government, any defense contractor, could possibly have managed through the fiscal situation that we have been in in the last few years, funding a month at a time, having sequestration cuts, et cetera. It is, it is I, I don't think there's been anybody who has not said to me, just tell me how much money I've got for the year. I'll make it work. But this not knowing what you've got and, and having all those constraints has, has really been a damage. There's probably a longer list of things we could have done better, but those jump to mind. I mentioned I think Congress's job in national security boils down to three things. Provide the tools, provide the money, and provide the oversight. Uh, and by tools, what I mean is the authorities and the organizations to deal with the challenges that the country faces. As, as you, we've heard and as all of us know, particularly today, we face a wider variety of serious national security threats than we have faced in a long time. Some people say since the 70s, some people say since the end of World War II, but, but the point is it is a very complex environment and as you've heard several times today, part of our challenge is how to prepare for surprise. What that means is we have to have organizations that are agile and capable of responding uh, to, to uncertainty and to surprise. Agility is not a characteristic one usually associates with the dominant power of the day, nor is it a characteristic one usually associates with bureaucracies. Now, one of Congress's jobs is to help 
force that kind of change that bureaucracies can't do to themselves. So it was Congress that passed the Goldwater-Nichols reform in the 80s. It was Congress that ended up doing the Intelligence Reform Act, even though, as you've heard, there were seeds of it being planted, moving in that direction beforehand, to have that statutory basis, the power to, to, to do the things that need to be done. It requires a change in law, and change in law requires Congress. We know uh, change is hard. Dr. John Cotter of the Harvard Business School has made a study of such things, and he says that 70% of major change in organizations fail. One of my favorite quotes is from Dr. Edward Teller's autobiography when he, which he, when he said, the substance with the greatest inertia known to man is the human brain. And the only substance more inert is the collection of human brains found in a large organization such as a military service or the faculty of a university. <laughs> Take that what you will, but the point is uh, to, a lot of times change requires an external sort of catalyst. That's what Congress must be because nobody else will be that external catalyst for change in these bureaucracies. And I think we have done that. It's not perfect. Uh, but we have created that change, but I completely agree with the people who say that uh, organizational change may be needed, but it is never sufficient to accomplish the goals. And as we look back on intelligence reform, as we look back on the Department of Homeland Security, as I look back on the National Nuclear Security Administration, uh, none of them have fully lived up to the hopes and goals of of them of when they were passed. Maybe they were too ambitious, but, but there is no substitute for, for leadership. The most important tool, obviously, is, is our people. Now, the same is true with authorities. And again, we could have a long list just from the, the comments we've heard here today. But it is up to Congress to help provide the legal authorities uh, for the people in the executive branch to take action. So, for example, back to uh, Admiral McConnell's point earlier today, what authority does the military have today to protect the private sector from cyber attack? We haven't really grappled with, with that. Uh, in, in bio, the, you know, this is what I get, hit, I get asked about every, just about every question for my constituents with Ebola. But, but who's really in charge of figuring out whether this is a, national, a, a natural uh, biological attack or a terrorist biological attack if we were to have something like that here at home? Uh, training and equipping authority, balancing privacy with drones, I mean the list goes on and on uh, about balancing considerations and trying to decide what is the appropriate amount of authority and what is the appropriate amount of restraint on various government agencies trying to deal effectively in, in a dangerous world. Maybe the greatest example that still bugs me is that we are still operating under the 2001 AUMF 13 years later for terrorist organizations that don't look very much like they did in 2001. And to think about how that 2001 AUMF can be used as the legal basis 
to attack networks all around the world and an ideology all around the world is something that we just have not dealt with. I know any administration prefers to have maximum flexibility. Uh, and in this case, with the AUMF, both the Bush and the Obama administrations will go to the courts, and as long as the executive and the courts can agree on some way to define the words, then it's fine, but that's not what the Constitution says. The Constitution says it's only Congress that can declare war, authorize the use of military force. Of course, what happens if Congress is unwilling to exercise that, uh, that, that judgment? What I think that does is that leaves young men and women who are serving our country out there without the proper constitutional backing, and I think that is, is, uh, is just uh, something we can't tolerate. So providing the authorities for the, 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 the tools, the, the organizations and authorities is one of Congress's jobs. Another job is to provide the money. We've already talked about that. The greatest need is, is stability. Um, a lot of people don't know, CSBA, uh, Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, came out with a study a few weeks ago that says the defense budget has been cut 21% since 2010. Uh, that's a pretty hefty cut for, for the defense budgets, which obviously includes the intelligence community. Uh, we have a momentary respite from further sequestration cuts. But starting again uh, in next October 1, those sequestration kicks back in with, with, with further cuts. Um, we are now down to a point where the defense budget is 16.3% of the federal budget. And yet that 16.3% of the federal budget has absorbed 50% of the cuts under sequestration. Obviously, with the world going the way it is, we cannot continue that way. I'm relatively optimistic that many of my colleagues in Congress have had their eyes opened over the last uh, few months that we do have a dangerous world. But it's interesting to note, just to bore you with statistics, 53% of Congress has been in office less than, in, of the House, 53% of the House has been in office less than six years. So there's a lot of people who never lived through 9-11. Uh, much less ha seen a lot of the national security challenges that people in this, uh, in this conference have had to deal with. So their eyes are being opened, and, and I'm relatively optimistic uh, with a decent amount of goodwill that we can find a way to avoid further cuts to the defense budget. The other thing, as Ambassador uh, Trani mentioned, is defense reform, including acquisition reform. In whatever scenario we can think of, uh, we're, gonna have, we're not going to have enough, all the money that we would like to have. We're going to have to figure out a way to get more defense value for the money that we do spend. And part of that means we've got to spend smarter and we've got to use less of it on bureaucracy and overhead. It is remarkable, even people coming out of the Obama administration uh, Pentagon talk about the tremendous increase in the number of civilians in the, the Pentagon and, and how that consumes more and more resources. Uh, so with that, uh, with reform, uh, to me that means giving managers more flexibility to manage and make decisions on programs uh, but going that with that has to be accountability for anybody who who takes the wrong step. 
So funding is, is the other job of Congress. The final job, I think, is oversight, and only Congress can provide oversight, especially of, of classified programs. Uh, we're trying to do better on that. And let me give you two examples where I think we have made some pretty good strides. Two years ago in the Defense Authorization Act, we set up a oversight mechanism for cyber, secure, for cyber operations. You think about it, how in the world does something as cumbersome as Congress oversee operations that travel at the speed of light? Well, you can't do it in real time, but what you can do is set up a framework of regular reporting and an overview of, of what has happened with our, our military cyber folks over a period of time so that you've got a picture of what has happened but also what direction it's happened. We followed a similar framework in last year's bill where we put in a requirement of a, an oversight requirement for sensitive military operations defined as kill or capture operations outside of a war zone. So the framework says the administration has to come to us first with an explanation of their legal authorities and, and, and their procedures, what they intend to do ahead of time. They have to give us roughly contemporaneous notification that there is an operation underway. And then quarterly, they have to give us an overview of the actions that they have taken over the last quarter. So the idea is, how can you help the people who are charged with protecting the country be flexible enough to respond to very rapidly changing circumstances, but at the same time do our job under the Constitution to provide the oversight uh, on behalf of the taxpayers? I think a framework like that, where they have the flexibility but periodically come and report what they have done, is a, is a good way to do it. But... What does that depend on? That depends on getting the information from the administration. And I got to say, the failure of, the of this administration to follow the law, giving 30 days notice before any transfer of prisoners from Guantanamo was, you know, whatever you think about the substance of the Bergdahl deal, the failure to follow the law in that case undermines the trust that is required for these flexible, accountability frameworks of oversight to work. Um, I hope we do better. I hope that was a one-off situation, but, but we will see. Obviously, uh, through the questions we ask, Congress can also help prod an administration at least into considering other things. Uh, I was thinking as, as, as Mary was talking about terrorism earlier, uh, former Speaker Gingrich called me a few weeks ago and, and made the point that we need to think of terrorism like we think of disease epidemics because the epidemiologists who try to focus on controlling pandemics have a different way of looking at problems and of containing them than do uh, uh, the traditional way of looking at terrorism. Congress can help provoke some of that debate. We can't tell people what to think, but through our oversight, we can help, um, help uh, at least get some of those other ideas considered. Mike Hayden says that policymakers look at the world as we would like it to be, are inherently optimistic, and are vision-based. While the intelligence community is the world as it is, inherently pessimistic and fact-based. I think there's a lot of truth in those characterizations, but Congress can be a bridge between the two through our oversight as well as reassuring the public um, when that 
the things they can't know all the details about, but those things are being carried out in a way consistent with their values. I guess the last point I want to make is this, and, uh, and maybe this is a fourth area where, that I think is a role that Congress has to play in national security. Several years ago, CSIS did a, a series of reports on, called Beyond Goldwater Nichols about defense reform. And in the first part of their report, there was a whole chapter on uh, congressional oversight. Their argument essentially was that Congress is the place where ideas become the nation's plans and commitments. And so you can have a Bush policy for this or an Obama policy for that, but it fades as administrations change and as people come and go. But the way to make something the country's policy is to go through that messy, inefficient, kind of frustrating process of Congress, of congressional debate, of actually having votes. And going through all of that can help a Bush or Obama policy become the nation's policy, even as messy and inefficient as it is. Their quote was, Congress is the indispensable link to the American people, the connective tissue between our national leaders and policies. Now they went on to say that we don't do a very good job of that, that we major in the minors, or as they say, focus on the capillaries, and don't look at the big national debates and, 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 and facilitate the Bush or Obama policies becoming the national policies. So that goes, we can do better, there's no question. But on the other hand, if the attempt is just go around Congress, there are a bunch of knuckleheads anyway, and it's, it's not worth the effort, then I think the country becomes uh, worse off. We don't have that connective tissue between the people and their government and the policies become transitory, not the country's policies. So I worry a little bit that there, as, as was said in another context, a soft bigotry of low expectations when it comes to Congress. Um, that we do a lot, because there's 535 diverse individuals, there's a lot of silly things said and done that can justify having those low expectations. But I think if you look back on the last 10 years, Congress has been both a help and a hindrance to protecting the country, and yet it is central under our Constitution to making decisions. And so the national security decisions we face uh, in the days ahead with this vast array of diverse threats is going to require the best of all of us, and I would suggest that includes even the best of the first branch, as messy and as frustrating as it can be. Thanks. And if I may, I'm going to take the moderator's privilege to, to start us off uh, with the observation that, uh, Congressman, you have the unusual perch of being able to see things both from the House Armed Services perspective and the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence perspective, which puts you in a great position to compare the degree of oversight for operational activity, both on the Title 50 side and the sensitive military operations side. Um, can you offer any observations about how the two compare, and, and can you note whether there's any risk that as um, sometimes 
special operations forces may be seconded to the Title 50 side, or you get various cooperative endeavors. Is there any slippage between them? Yeah. Administrations are really good at finding the seams between the two. Uh, between Title 50 and Title 50, I mean Title 50 and Title 10, and between armed services and intelligence. Uh, and we have even recently been dealing with some issues where uh, they're trying to find the seam in, in between. So I think we are making some reforms inside Congress to help prevent there from being any seams between the two. Uh, the Armed Services Committee is putting more time and attention on intelligence than it ever has before. Uh, and for good reason, because intelligence is more crucial to the people on the battlefield than it has ever been before. Uh, and at the same time, on the intelligence side, uh, there's uh, more interaction than previously with especially uh, special operations uh, forces. So I, I think the goal has to be whatever tool is best equipped to do the job, that's a tool that needs to be done. Congress has to adjust itself to deal with the way the world is. And that includes committee jurisdictions, which is some of the most sacrosanct uh, uh, areas one can ever intrude upon. Uh, the next question is uh, Director John McLaughlin. Uh, Congressman, I've, uh, many people in the room here have uh, experienced oversight from uh, the House Committee in particular, and, and I certainly am a great supporter of it. It's one of the few things that connects us to the American people. Um, it's gone up and down over the years. There have been times when it, it has bordered on hostility. My sense is that under Chairman Rogers uh, and uh, Vice Chairman Ruppersberger, you all have managed to really take, you can tell me whether this is true or not, but from afar, it appears that you've consciously sought in that committee to take a bipartisan approach to intelligence. And what I hear from people in the intelligence community is it has worked well. Can you say a few words about how did you, it, it almost amounts to a transformation, I think, from one era of Diff very difficult relations to one where oversight's being carried out in a different atmosphere. How did you make that transition? How did that occur? How did you move from whatever you want to call the previous era to one where it appears to be bipartisan in a very partisan era? Um, I think you're right. It has changed. Part of the reason it changed is because it was so bad before. I mean, I know it was tough to be on y'all's side of the table. It wasn't much fun to be on our side of the table either. Uh, with such intense partisanship that you really couldn't get to the issue. So part of it was everybody was disgusted uh, at the partisanship before. I'll tell you honestly, I think a, a lion's share of the credit goes to Dutch Ruppersberger for this because a chairman always wants to have uh, everybody in agreement so the committee can function. The question is what is the ranking, what, is, what are the minority members going to do? Do they want to sit there and throw rocks? Uh, or are they willing to be constructive partners even though uh, they're in the minority and may lose some, some of the votes if there's, a, if there's a difference? And I think Dutch in our committee has, has said from the beginning that, uh, that he wanted to be constructive. It helps that he represents the people at NSA. Uh, you know, so, so his additional motivation to be positive. And I agree with you, it has made a difference. Doesn't mean we always agree on everything, but it is a, a much better environment for, for, the, uh, 
for the community much more constructive to, to getting things done. Similarly, I think on the armed services side, we have never had that degree of partisanship. More of what we do on armed services out in the open, it's not all behind closed doors like on Intel, uh, but, but generally there is not much partisanship there either. And um, I hope that is a tradition that we can continue because I think it's really, it's really important in both ways. One, to offer praise and support when we think you're doing right, but also if you're getting bipartisan criticism when we think you're doing something wrong, maybe that carries greater weight. So I think it needs to happen that way, whatever the, the, the particular issue is. Um, at the end of your remarks, you alluded to the problem of congressional committee jurisdictions. As my impression is, this is the uh, one area in which all the recommendations of every uh, outside group have been totally ignored. Uh, so is there anything anyone could do to move Congress to in a direction that outside of Congress I think there's absolute unanimity on? Sure. Uh, so, for example, before, at the beginning of each Congress, we vote on and adopt a new set of rules which defines the jurisdiction of the different committees. Uh, I think there may well be an effort to help uh, rationalize some of the jurisdiction of the Homeland Security Committee uh, in the next Congress. Now, I can't tell you how it's all going to go. It won't fix all the problems, I promise. But, uh, but I think it will hopefully be steps in the right direction. But here's the other thing, and, and this is another uh, uh, back to uh, what the current chairman and ranking member on the Intelligence Committee have done. They have invited in to set in all of our sessions the chair and ranking member of the Defense Appropriations Committee. So these are the people that write the checks. Uh, they don't vote if we have a vote on something, but they can be there, ask questions, and be there for, for any uh, session we have in the Intelligence Committee. There is talk about doing a similar thing next Congress for the Armed Services Committee, so that even informally we can make sure that uh, there, there are not seams and that there is, the committees are able to work together. Now, back to what you, the theme you've heard all day, you can go so far with organizational reform, but what really counts are the people and, and the jobs. And, and that's true in Congress, just like it's true in the intelligence community. So, uh, you know, I'm pretty optimistic that uh, at least from a military, intelligence, homeland security side, and the appropriation and authorizi authorizing side, uh, things are moving in the right direction in the House. I couldn't possibly speak to the Senate. Sir, uh, Captain Brandon Archuleta, I'm a fellow here with the uh, Clement Center. Uh, first, I want to thank you for your very bipartisan leadership on the uh, Armed Services Committee. We, uh, in uniform, appreciate it. Uh, but it's that leadership I'd like to ask you about. Uh, perhaps because we're among friends here, you might be able to give us a preview of uh, some of the legislative battles that will be coming up in the 2016 NDAA, uh, considering you mentioned one of the 800-pound gorillas, uh, acquisition reform, and I submit perhaps the other 800-pound gorilla is uh, personnel and compensation and uh, wonder how you are going to make the tough choices given the political window that I think you might have between elections. Yeah, well, good point. I mean, if 
But let me back up for a second. Um, I think we may have this authorization for the use of force in Iraq and Syria to deal with, too, and it's a pretty big gorilla. Um, probably not in a lame duck, but uh, that issue is hanging out there. As, as far as, as on the uh, Armed Services Defense Authorization Bill, uh, we do will have some of our reform recommendations, acquisition reform and others, uh, that will hope to be available in that time frame. As you mentioned, the Personnel uh, Commission is supposed to report in February, March-ish, and uh, so we will have those to, to consider and, and look at. And then, as we've talked, we have the sequestration issue for the government as a whole. So, so you have these three big issues of funding that, um, that we have the opportunity to, to take action on. Uh, and, and again, I, I, I'm relatively optimistic that a lot of folks around the country, even in Congress, have gotten their eyes open to the fact that it's a dangerous world, that the 21% the cut we, we made in defense since 2010 has had real consequences, and that headed towards the smallest army since 1940, the smallest navy since 1931, the smallest air force since it uh, has been created is not a smart thing to do. Uh, so I think we'll be able to avoid it uh, I just can't give you the roadmap on all the elements that are that are going to be in there. Um, and, and just briefly on the personnel deal, one of the questions is, will they recommend grandfathering in people to whom the country has already made commitments uh, and making uh, changes, giving greater options to new people coming in? If so, I think we've got a reasonable chance to do that. Because part of what the military has to compete for, just like the intelligence community, is you want those cyber guys who are also could go work for Google. And so thinking about, they're not going you'll never outbid Google, but thinking about pay and compensation that makes more sense for, for some of these folks, uh, even the whole generation, what is it, are supposed to have 11 different jobs over their career. Having a 20-year retirement plan, whereas if you retire after 19 years, you get nothing, probably doesn't make a lot of sense for them. So, so updating the pay and compensation for recruitment as well as uh, some financial saving over a long period, you know, is something maybe we can do. Congressman, thanks for being with us. We, we really appreciate you taking the time out. Um, our, the previous decade saw the rise of neoconservatism personified by Cheney, Rumsfeld, and Wolfowitz. We lost a lot of blood and treasure towards the end of that decade, and then you saw a wild counterswing over to the rise of neo-isolationism personified by Rand Paul and his father. Would you comment what you think wise, effective U.S. national security policy looks like prospectively and how we avoid swinging so wildly back and forth from extremes on the spectrum and who in the current Congress personifies what is wise, effective national security policy going forward? Oh, I, I don't know is the short answer. Uh, you know, uh, American public opinion swings back and forth. Um, to some extent, Congress is a reflection of that opinion, but the reason uh, we run for office, the reason you choose us in Congress is, is not just to, to be a mirror back to what you tell us, it's to rise above that 
to provide some of that longer term leadership. And, and probably that is more challenging today with 24-hour media and, and the internet and all that than it has been in the past. And yet, that's still, you know, if you're not going to be able to, to um, uh, act in the long-term best interests of the country, you probably shouldn't be running, running for Congress. Um, so I don't know what the next swing will be. I tend to believe uh, that some, as, as you, we've heard here today, one of the key things for us in the future is engagement early. Small footprints, training and equipping others, being involved, not waiting until a problem festers and gets so bad as Syria and Iraq, as Syria has right now, that there are no good answers. So earlier engagement, but not coming in and trying to do everything ourselves, but trying to help uh, the, the, the local forces be better equipped to deal with their own problems. But I recognize that local forces, Mali Army, for example, may not be able to deal with uh, um, their local problem, and in which case there has to be some uh, intervention uh, to, to, help, to help get a hand, the handle on it. But, I'd, but I guess it goes back to my view is a variety of tools available uh, to deal with what is sure to be the unexpected and could be everything from a major nuclear power to a disease outbreak and all sorts of things in between. I mean, that's our challenge, which uh, is, is, is very, very tough to, to even figure out what those tools should be, much less what's the appropriate use of them, what's the appropriate oversight, and how are we going to pay for it all. Um, so I don't know to answer your question. But, uh, but, but I, I promise there will be another swing to something else. And, and part of our job in, in leadership in the executive and in the legislative branch is, is to keep our eye on the ball, not overreacting, but also responding adequately to the situation. I've got a question from this side of the room. Dr. Inboden. Uh, Congressman, let me first echo all the other thanks for the time you've invested in being here with us today and, um, uh, and your insights. Uh, um, last night, Admiral McRaven said that he thinks the arguably the greatest threat facing the United States is failed states and all the pathologies, failed states and all the pathologies that come along with that. Um, going back to your remarks about Congress's role in providing tools and authorities, as you're very familiar over the last decade or so, there's been a lot of different efforts originating some in Congress, some in the executive branch to better equip the United States to deal with the post-conflict stabilization, uh, uh, you know, uh, stability operations, failed states, but they've all kind of withered. You know, the um, SCRS was created at the State Department, but the regional bureaus pecked it to death. It didn't get enough funding. There's been others. Um, and yet, and, and it's partly in the American culture, in our history, we don't like to be an imperial power. We don't like to be nation builders. And yet, um, the gap between that and arguably the failed state problem is, is growing. So to put it to you specifically, um, does the Hill need to pass um, a robust measure creating some sort of new entity, a bureau, a department, an agency, a something to, uh, to deal with the failed state problem? Maybe. Uh, and and I, I've listened carefully and I've thought all day uh, about comments Director Clapper and others were making uh, about organizational reform. That every time you shake things up, it brings a new set of problems. I said that, quoting Kissinger. Uh, that you have the time and effort it takes for everybody to find their place. So there's a real cost to organizational reform. And yet at the same time, sometimes you've got to shake things up. 
You can't just assume, for example, that the State Department, one of the, the funds that we have requires the State Department and DOD to sign off before any sort of money is spent uh, for one of these training efforts. Well, they just never agree. And, and maybe they never will agree. And, and so maybe you do need to shake things up to have a different entity. Uh, it has been suggested that we create a different department uh, basically to deal with foreign aid and, and uh, kind of a police force and, and so forth for stability operations and uh, to help in, in other countries. I'm willing to look at that. I, I'm more realistic than I used to be that an organizational change won't solve it in and of itself, but maybe it's a necessary catalyst to, to, to making things happen. One other thing that your question makes me think of, uh, all of this requires leadership. I mean, I, the question earlier was uh, reflective of what we often hear is the American people are tired of, of foreign interventions. I'm not sure that's true. I think the American people are tired of fruitless efforts uh, and, and a world that's seemingly spiraling out of our control. What the American people, I think, would respond to is clear, consistent leadership. Uh, and unfortunately, I don't think we, they've been getting that from either party very well uh, in, in the last few years. So while I, I do think, there, you know, back to, the, I guess, the theme of the conference, sometimes organizational reform is necessary, but there is no substitute for, for leadership in following through on it. I think it's true uh, in explaining the American people why it is up, why we have an interest to be involved early to prevent problems from getting out of hand. And I do think, by the way, they're smarter than, a lot, the American people are smarter than most people give them credit for. They understand very well that if we don't deal with Ebola in Africa, there's no way we're gonna be insulated from the consequences of it. Uh, they're seeing that every night on, on the television. They just need a leader to explain, okay, we're doing this and this is why we're doing it. And, and if, if that's done credibly, I think they respond. Congressman, uh, my name is Mark Jabell and I'm a senior here and an undergraduate fellow with the Clement Center. Um, honing in on your third point of oversight, yep. um, Congress has, the RTPA was seen as a means towards, a statutory means towards changing the culture within the agencies towards greater integration. Um, as Congress seeks to oversee and ask the right questions, have you seen that same sort of culture change within your colleagues and within party leadership? And if not, are there some sort of process changes within perhaps the committee structures um, or those frameworks, those oversight frameworks you alluded to earlier that could better help facilitate that sort of, uh, those sort of asking the right questions? And uh, second to the uh, question, two questions ago, um, how do you argue those sorts of points to the American people? What are the things, what are the sort of key points that you make to them of why we should have these sort of sustained, perhaps low intensity, uh, longer term engagements to help get in early and prevent it from becoming and festering. Yeah, um, I, I don't know that it requires organizational change within the committees to encourage this longer, broader view. But you know what? I, one of the things I was thinking about is uh, most of our interactions with people in Congress are across a witness table where we get a total of five minutes for the question and the answer. And, and the witnesses are really good at, at filibustering out to the end of the time. Or some members are really good at taking, you know, four minutes and 30 seconds for their question and leaving 30 seconds for the answer. And, and it's not a very good format for really helping people think 
and, and, uh, and consider different problems. What is much more useful are things like we did here today. Uh, and we don't have nearly enough of that informal sort of back and forth with policymakers, with think tank people. And I think that helps as uh, can be a, a one thing that we could do better that would help uh, members have this broader, longer view. Now the problem is you got to capture people's time, and so they've got the dairy farmers waiting on them in the office. The nurses are lined up out in the hall, and they've got to go give a speech, you know, to uh, the home builders who are all in town. So getting people's time to focus on this is is a challenge. But one of the things I think we could do better is 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 facilitate more of informal exchanges. I mean, I know. Uh, 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 Director McLaughlin would come up occasionally to the Intelligence Committee and just as a roundtable discussion without a court reporter and so forth. And, and that sort of thing I think we could, could do uh, more of. Uh, on your second question, how do we explain to them the importance of, uh, of, of being involved? One thing is by reminding them of history. I, I have never gotten more questions about what's happening in the world right now than I'm getting right now at, at home. So I've developed a little slideshow with nothing but pictures that goes through some of the different threats we face, but reminds them of our history of World War I and how we came back home and we ended up with an army smaller than the army of Romania when World War II broke out. And how after World War II, we decided we're not going to make that mistake again. And we've still got troops in Germany and Japan today. But generally, if you look at what's happened inside the United States to our cost, our quality of life, our standard of living, our life expectancy, as well as what's happened around the world, the world has benefit from, benefited from the U.S. engagement. And so I think you can remind people that the United States is the force for good in the world, that if we're not there, then that vacuum will be filled by others, and they are not for good, and, and uh, it is to our benefit that we do so. But we do so smartly. We don't go solve every problem. We don't brush off you know, troops in every situation, but we have to be engaged in a, in a smart way. Uh, I think if you just kind of remind people of history, it really helps because they understand that instinctively. Uh, Congressman, thanks for your remarks. And uh, I know everybody here is looking forward to uh, your ascendancy to the chairmanship of the, uh, the Armed Services Committee. Uh, You've put in so much uh, valuable time and and that kind of experience, uh, I'm sure, is going to be invaluable as we move forward. So and I know it's no done deal, but anyway. Yeah, so I appreciate it, except I think one person here may not be looking forward to it, and that's my wife. Two questions, but basically around the same issue. Uh, there's various proposals in the House and the Senate to reform the FISA legislation and 215 of the Patriot Act. Uh, a, what do you think the prospects are for passage of any of these bills? Uh, and B, would you be happy with the passage of any of these bills? Um, and then second thing is more, uh, I think, more interesting to me is after this known leaks and the sort of public debate about privacy, uh, you heard from a lot of uh, your colleagues, or at least I heard from a lot of the colleagues, that when they went back home, they had a very difficult time defending uh, the program as it existed in the absence of the president, for example, saying much of anything. And so how much of this, the crisis that we've faced because of the Snowden leaks, 
is really just a, a lack of leadership or a lack of public education about what the intelligence community was, in fact, doing. No, I, I think it's a substantial part of it. I mean, you heard the director Clapper earlier today said he would appreciate more cheerleading. Uh, I do think there's a special responsibility on those of, for those of us on the intelligence committees who oversee these things and know the details of these things to speak up and, uh, and, and basically say what we know. Of course, part of our challenge is we have to, be, we have to get cleared what we can say about them before we do. And, and so that gets kind of cumbersome. But as far as generally sticking up for the intelligence community, we probably could be more effective uh, at it, but I think it is incumbent upon us to do that. We can obviously be much more effective if we have the, the, the president speaking out because he has a far bigger microphone than, than any of us do. Um, so, I, I mean, I do ag agree with that. I forgot the first part. Oh, yeah. I tell you, I, I would be happy to make no changes in FISA. Uh, now, there is an expiration coming up, so it has to be extended. Uh, but I, just as I said, the, the, what has happened over the past few months in the world has opened a lot of people's eyes as far as sequestration and cuts in the budget. I think it's also at least helped a lot of people understand that we're talking about important stuff here and that there are real consequences to tying our own hands. Uh, we make ourselves less capable. That means more Americans are at risk. Um, and, 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 and one of my arguments to leadership of recent days is we have to find a way so that people own the consequences of their no votes. It is really easy to be against stuff. Uh, but, but too often, in, in the House at least, we've had a problem where people can always vote no, but then there was some way to prevent the consequences of, those, of that no from actually coming to be. Other people have come in to bail them out. And, and that encourages irresponsible behavior. So, I mean, I don't want to see it where we have some new FISA restrictions and therefore our intelligence community is, is less capable and therefore bad things happen. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think it's important that, that, that men and women in the House and the Senate uh, be responsible adults and take the consequences for their actions. And I, I do think that, we, that the, the debate has changed dramatically from where it was in the early Snowden leaks and that most people appreciate the importance of having information to protect this country. Probably most people in Congress do not appreciate fully what Director Clapper and, other, and Matt Olson and others have said, that we have lost a lot of information uh, at, in, in the past year or two. And in my view, we are significantly less capable now than we were three or four years ago at, at uh, protecting the country. One last question, and we'll go here to David Shedd. Uh-oh. That's not fair. I get to ask him questions, not the <laughs> other way around. Not today. <laughs> Tables are turned. Um, thank you again for being here. Um, could you give us your thoughts on Leahy Vetti? As we think about partnership engagement, I think as the changing face of where the hand of terrorism, international terrorism, is going, and I'm thinking of Nigeria, for example, one of the oft-refrained 
comments that I get from combatant commands, in this case, uh, General Rodriguez for AFRICOM, is the hands being tied on that engagement because of Leahy. It's a little bit like Hotel California. You get in, and there's somehow no way to get out. Could you talk about that a bit? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, do y'all know, know what he's talking about? There, there is a provision in U.S. law basically to protect human rights, which prevents U.S. military people from training people with whom there is some question about their human rights record. But it has gotten expanded to the point where now, if you have a human rights violation, the whole unit can be tainted, and we can't have any dealings with that whole unit. And then the question is, okay, if they have an episode uh, uh, that's a human rights question, how do they ever get it cleaned up? And, and so you have huge numbers of, of other militaries and security forces that we can't deal with because of this Leahy vetting. Uh, what they, the military has to do is, is send a list over to the State Department and, and, and then if, uh, this process, which is, is, is cumbersome, they have to go through before any of that training can occur. Uh, I chuckled when you said Nigeria because I was there, uh, I don't know, three or four years ago where this very issue was brought up, as well as other countries in Africa. Uh, and, and part of the issue, I think most, the attitude of most people is we don't want to have dealings with somebody we know is a bad person. But when you start writing off whole units, or in, in one case, a whole training school, uh, you get everybody tainted who has ever gone through that school, then it's just ridiculous that we are putting off limits to ourselves enormous numbers of people who are the very people who would benefit the most by our engagement with them, to show them what to do and, and how to do it. So I think uh, we may make some improvements in Leahy uh, law, uh, maybe this year. Uh, so I don't know that the final negotiations have, have been completed, but there have, are discussions exactly along the points that you're mentioning because it really is an inhibitor to us being as effective in some of these most fragile countries that most could most benefit from our assistance. So I hope we do. Uh, keeping the essential protections in place, but not interpreting it in a way that prevents us from engaging and training uh, large numbers of, of folks. Thank you.